Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm Lauren Lee, and I'm all about building communities, celebrating unique journeys, and sharing stories about the paths people have taken to enter the tech industry. Join me as we explore the skills my guests have learned in their prior jobs, schooling, or life experiences, and how they apply them to their current roles in tech. All right, let's do this and dive in. My guest today is an engineering leader and instructor residing in Oakland, California. By day, he's the director of engineering for Bootcamp Academic Systems at Trilogy Education Services, a 2U Inc. brand, leading teams that aspire to build the best experiences for bootcamp learning and instruction. In addition, he periodically teaches full-stack web development or data visualization bootcamp courses via UC Berkeley and the University of Denver. In his recreational time, he enjoys traveling, hiking, photography, nutritional coaching, and writing code to keep the skills sharp. His name is Jason J. Phillips. Jason, welcome to the show. Lauren, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. Uh, Shall we start at the beginning? Yeah, let's jump right in. Okay, let's do it. So can you tell me more about the experiences that you had before you entered the tech industry? Yeah, so um, before I officially entered the tech industry, I was actually in college and studying a dual major math computer science. While I was doing that, all of my jobs at the time were all non-technical. So I was like a copy machine operator at uh, Morgan Stanley. Uh, That was interesting. You get paid a lot just to sit there and run copies all day. Wow. Wow. Sure. Best college job ever. (laughs) For college too. I'm sure you could like sneak a textbook in there and kind of study on the side too. It was great. As long as we didn't have like some urgent uh, projects for somebody, we were able to just kind of keep it rolling. <laughs> sure. Yes, yeah, so I did that job. I worked in um, public access television for the for the Bronx, New York, which is where I'm originally from. Okay. And so the studio was actually in the basement of the college I went to, Lehman College. Mm-hmm. And I did everything from camera operation to field work with the camera folks, technical direction, audio direction. Wow. There's probably not a role besides actual director that I Mm -hmm. didn't touch while I was there, which was awesome. That's really cool. Uh, And then one of the last roles I had before I officially kind of started writing code professionally, Mm -hmm. uh, I ran an after-school program at a boys and girls club. And then after that, I was a TA at a DJ uh, school. TA at a DJ school. Yeah. So there was a school, Scratch DJ Academy. Okay. uh, Which was founded by Jam Master J and really endeavored to just teach everyone the art of DJing. Okay. And a good friend of mine at the time was working there, got me on board as an assistant uh, marketing person there. And so basically I was doing a lot of street team and flyer handouts Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. TAing. And that actually ended up with me starting to manage the website there. And that's how I got my official start in tech. Oh, so you were working there, being a TA for that sort of program. What did that look like? What were you doing? Yeah, so a lot of that was after the instructor kind of went through and modeled a lot of the actions we were doing, say if we were practicing different types of scratches with vinyl records. Sure. Uh, we'd go in and kind of just walk around and re-demonstrate for everyone at their station. So mm-hmm. it was like about 20 people with two turntable setups and a mixer. And we would just actively model what they had just learned and then watch them do it, mm-hmm. give them pointers and just give them some real pointed feedback on right, a one-to-one right. level. Yeah. Which is crucial in that learning moment. Cool. Wow, that's so interesting. And so they had a website that they were wanting to make edits or modifications to, and you said, oh, I'll play around with that? 
yeah, I just said, oh, I know HTML. And that's, oh. so I started doing their HTML emails, which Great. I think every developer earns the HTML email badge at some point in life. Definitely. And then you realize you never want to do it again. Sure. <laughs> Okay, so and at that moment you were like, "Wow, this is curious. I'm I want to continue pursuing this sort of learning." Yeah, it was after I did that, and then started working on the uh, e-commerce site. They gave me the grand title of assistant webmaster, which oh, was hey. which was awesome in 2002 <laughs> and 2003. <laughs> oh, for sure, very cool. <laughs> it was funny for me because at that point I had dropped computer science and math as a dual major and decided that I actually didn't enjoy programming. And I realized that it really was, I needed a creative application for it to kind of stick for me. And so learning it the other way and kind of doing it for the first time outside of academia gave me the hook to come back. Right. Because the courses that you were taking in school maybe were a bit drier. There wasn't any like the function behind it. Yeah. I mean, to give you an example, our internet programming course was all about Java applets. Okay. Which has not aged well. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And so there wasn't like a lot of interactivity there. A lot of our homework was like saving jars to a floppy disk and handing it in. There was no real big notion yet of like Maven and package management. I see. There was still a lot of manual ant building and creating your own build files. And I just didn't find a lot of it as I progressed further, like really hooking me in terms of I'm creating something creative and something rewarding for people. Sure. So then you're pursuing something creative and working at the a DJ Academy. It's probably then you can see the value of creating it and making something and, and your HTML emails probably looks really great. And so that's interesting then. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. And it was interesting too, because around that time, as I was pursuing DJing, a lot of us were kind of multi, uh, like multiple hat wearing. So yeah, you, there was quite yeah, a few of us who were you know, recording audio, uh, working in studios or doing design work, Mm -hmm. which I did a little bit of as well at that time, doing web work. So a lot of us were very technically inclined and just learning from each other too. So there was a lot of kind of organic uh, inspiration from other people in terms of, oh, JavaScript can do that? Yeah. Learn more. That collaborative moment of seeing a friend build something and being like, wait, 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 show me how you did that. I love that feeling. (laughs) Yeah, it was like GitHub before there was a GitHub. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so great. And it, yeah, and it's people that you trust and are curious to hear more from also uh, in that like organic way because they're people in your community. I love that. That's so interesting. So so at that point then, were you, why did you leave the, eventually you didn't stay at the DJ Academy. What happened then? So while I was working there, I started to keep my eyes out for a new opportunity because I wanted to kind of find my next Mm-hmm. gig within programming. I wanted to do something a bit more substantial okay, okay. Um, and be somewhere that was probably a bit more like user focused for web instead of just making content updates and managing some light pages. Okay. Uh, so then I got an opportunity with the U.S. Tennis Association to come in and do a lot of work for the U.S. Open in 2004. Wow. And so I went there to do Interesting. Uh, a lot of graphics for the web broadcasts for the U.S. Open in 2004. Mm-hmm. and a lot of flash games and flash ads. Awesome. Oh, wow. Cool. That's so interesting. And so that probably gave you a ton of experience that then you were able to move on and be you know, a web developer at places and like find those roles. Yeah, it gave me a lot of skills and also a lot of experience dealing with different types of stakeholders. Mm, um, mm, as much as I loved being at Scratch DJ Academy, it mm-hmm. was the owner, the business manager, <laughs> you know, biz dev, uh, advertising. It's like, all, I knew these folks. We had a great relationship, but yeah. it was all the same kind of unidirectional flow of work where mm-hmm. when I was at the U.S. Open, 
It was like, okay, hey, we need to do these for our partner schools. We need to do these things for our partner sponsors. And so mm-hmm. there was never a dull moment. Every single project was different. I learned a lot about ActionScript, which at the time I didn't even know you could program in Flash. So <laughs> uh, it was an amazing opportunity. And it also opened me up to the world of agencies mm. and understanding that, there, hey, you can go work at an ad agency. You can go work, uh, you can work independently. You can work with a staffing firm. Right. And so then it was like, okay, I've now also found a new way to find future roles and to find more diverse types of work. Yeah, sure. I've never worked in the agency world, but from folks, you know, chatting on the show and then just people in my network, it sounds like the reason people stay for the time that they do in that work is because it's always exciting. There's always a new client that you can take on and challenge to learn something different, or you can kind of pursue those interests through your role. It was pretty much a lot of that. And I think, um, so right after the USDA was my first agency uh, job, I worked at an agency called Ultra 16. Okay. And it was a small 20-person agency, kind of a boutique firm in based in Lower Manhattan, New York. And it was a very tight-knit community of folks. It felt like a startup, or what people say startups feel like, in terms of like, you know, it's on the ground floor, everybody's doing all this crazy work. And for such a small org, we were doing all sorts of work. We were working with Aveda, a bunch of L'Oreal brands. We worked on like the Lost Pilot and then website in Flash. Mm. Uh, Sports Illustrated, we worked on so many clients and so many different types of sites that in that nine month period, I probably saw more projects and different types of projects than in most points of my career anywhere else outside of the other ad agency I worked at. (laughs) Ah, got it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah, that exposure is so important when you're early in your career to see it all and to then decide what you're interested in also and to kind of choose areas to develop expertise in. But to be a generalist and early on is is great experience. Awesome thing about being a generalist and, and you've nailed it there with the you know, getting time to kind of explore different things and figure mm-hmm. out where you want to go next. Uh, for me, it was also agencies paid a bit more when you were hourly, if you commanded a certain rate after you've had a portfolio that you've built up. And that allowed me to pretty much go to Barnes & Noble. Like I jokingly say sometimes that I got my degree at the University of Barnes & Noble. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> because I had this crazy routine for a number of years where mm-hmm. every payday I went to Barnes & Noble, either the one in Union Square on 14th Street, which if you're in Manhattan and you're in Union Square, you know which Barnes & Noble because yeah. probably the only one that's still there. Yeah. <laughs> I would go to the computer section on the fourth floor. I would uh-huh. pull 10 books that appealed to me, read through, pick the three that felt like it spoke to me most. Uh-huh. And then put those aside, flip through the other seven until closing, and then buy the three. Buy the three. <laughs> uh, and so, okay, so you figured out early that you were, that was your style of learning. You did your learning kind of consuming through text, and that was that was what works for you. So you stuck with it, it sounds like. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because it wasn't until I started teaching much, much later that I mm-hmm. realized that the biggest part about the Barnes & Noble experience mm-hmm. was that I learned how I learned. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That and, metacognitive practice is really important. Yeah. So it's like once, you know, as you put it, that I, I found out like this is the way I, I consume knowledge. This is the way this kind of clicks mm-hmm. for me. I just needed more bookshelves and more bookshelves yeah. and more bookshelves. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Do you still have all of those books? <laughs> so I've donated a bunch, but I yeah. still have three that were like my starts in different areas. There's one with Action Script 3 uh, from Friends of ED. It was okay. like a very pink and red cover 
I just loved the <laughs> colors of it. So I kept that one. Gotta keep it. <laughs> and I kept the first book I ever bought, which ended up being the book. I didn't think the book was what it was until I opened it up. Mm. And it was, on the beginning, it said the HTML Bible, right? And mm. I was like, okay, so this is all things HTML. Right. I missed the fine print where it said, it's an anthology of all the HTML standards. So it was not very educational. It was more reference-based. And it was sure. thousands of pages wow. on nothing but W3C specs from HTML4. paper. Wow. <laughs> In paper. That was a heavy <laughs> book. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that you've held on to it, though. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm pretty sure every time I ship it to myself or move it in a box, I probably curse the box. But Oh, for yeah, 100%. It's, uh... <laughs> Well, it's interesting because then you're not in New York anymore. You've moved across to the Bay Area. Yes. So yeah. I'm currently in Oakland. Okay. So what brought you there? You Yeah. So funny enough, in 2003, while I was at the DJ school, I also went on a couple of tours nationally. Oh, very cool. Um, where we were going to different schools or different cities and teaching people how to DJ by day. And awesome. then at night, there was like a major artist. Uh, I think that year it was Vendetta Red and the Ataris. Sure. Um, I've never heard the song Boys of Summer not that much, except for that period of time. <laughs> it was awesome. I learned how rock stars party. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but one of the things I really learned was I really enjoyed other cities. So I okay. got to see a bunch of different states. Um, one tour we went on 36 places in 39 days. Oh my gosh. Um, and... The Bay Area was one that we went to and I was like, I could live here. Like the music scene is dope. Everyone's yeah. here just to be themselves. Yeah. It was the day of the Halloween parade and people were throwing fake blood on each other oh as like gosh. the bride of Carrie. And I was like, this is amazing. Here I am. Not for me, but this is amazing. <laughs> I wouldn't throw fake blood on me, but I love that you can do that and no one care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Express and yourself. Then, yeah. So like that, just that, that self-expression, that that kind of community vibe I saw, the the music scene seemed really together, especially amongst the DJs. And so I was like, okay, I've got to get back there at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, then years later, I met a good friend of mine, Andrew, on Twitter. And I interviewed for the first time to come out here uh, for dig.com. Okay. And while that opportunity didn't work out, that was the first time I ever went through, I guess, what people would call today, like a typical tech interview. Okay, know, like a whiteboarding how did you get by skipping that for so long? <laughs> so it's interesting because in, like in New York, processes were so different. And also the agency style, a lot of it was, um, yeah. let me see your portfolio. Yeah. All right, cool. We'll try you for a week. Do this project. Fill some hours. Yeah, let's see how it goes. And if you, yeah, your work is your, it speaks for itself. Yeah. So uh, one opportunity after two months of contracting, I ended up working there for almost five years. Oh my god. And gosh. that's where I went from doing a lot of client web development sites and sticking primarily on the front end to really learning what it takes to engineer like full backend systems. I got to run products. Uh, cool. I, I was in charge of like a business intelligence unit. I, I ran scrums. Like I did so many things there. Wow. And then I had my first quote, quote, real interview when I went and got the next job. But mm -hmm. even then the whiteboarding was a lot more practical. So mm -hmm. it was like, we're going to write some stuff on the board and we're going to talk through how you would solve it or talk through what the answer should be. And then I came out here and it was like, hey, here's a bubble sort that we want you to write out verbatim with perfect syntax on a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. And my brain went, huh? Excuse me? <laughs> and oh, yeah. to this day, my brain goes, huh? Still, of course. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate you saying that, actually. <laughs> look, whiteboarding in and of itself is a skill 
that depending on how it's done, it can either be analogous to how you are as a programmer or completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it took me a while to get that bearing, but sure. getting that first taste, I was like, okay, they flew me out here for an interview mm-hmm. for yeah. free. Yeah. I got to stay in a hotel yeah. Yeah. in San oh my Francisco gosh. for free. <laughs> yes. yes. And they almost hired me for free. <laughs> Oh, I'm doing this all the time. Right. And the expo- and it's great experience to interview because interviewing and whiteboarding is a skill that we can learn to get really great at also. And and it's this muscle that we must learn to flex. And so the more exposure you have to it, the better you get at it. Yeah. And it's um and just the the different types of people you get to meet. So you get to learn mm-hmm. how you react in different communication situations, yeah. even outside of the tech part. Definitely. Um, and it's a good point. It was definitely one of those skills that I did have to work at and and study and improve and practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what hooked me on San Francisco was when I came out here for the dig interview, Mm -hmm. I walk into a random Starbucks in a financial district and people are talking about uh, a production build and something going wrong in their Postgres database. And I was like, oh my God, they're speaking my language in a Starbucks. I want to be here. (laughs) I love it. Don't send me back home. (laughs) And that's when my mind shifted where I still wanted to come to the Bay, but now I wanted to be in the tech field in the Bay. Like I wanted to be part of that community because in New York at the time, advertising was very, was very segmented. There wasn't a lot of like meetups for technical folks until meetup really kind of got underway. Um, I would say Node.js was probably one of the first things that really made meetups kind of happen in New York before Mm, that. I didn't really get to meet a lot of developers. I certainly didn't meet a lot of developers who looked or sounded like me. Mm -hmm. And in New York, tech was not defined as an industry. It was a function of every industry. It's like, oh, I'm in tech in finance or in education or in health. Yeah. Whereas here it was like, oh, I'm in tech. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that's it's, so cool. Yeah, it's at the <laughs> forefront. Yeah. And it's your community is made up of that. Sure. That's, yeah, great point. Yeah, so then uh, let's see. I would say it took me another three years and 21 interviews before I finally moved out here in 2013. Nice. A good data analysis of you to ha- know exactly how many interviews. <laughs> oh, I count every single one of those. I, I, I tell everyone all the time I went two for 21. Mm-hmm. One offer I was fortunate for the first time in my life to turn down. Nice. Um, that feels good. <laughs> and then an offer I didn't expect from a company that told me no twice beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Uh, no, that's cool. And, and I think it, to have those, that data though, it, it's so encouraging and affirming for folks that are entering the space and are facing failure. And uh, just for us to be able to share that and say, no, 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 it's a numbers game. And it's not always going to be about whether or not um, you're a good developer either. Like there's so many other dynamics happening during an interview and right. I, it, it, like, I, I just face so much rejection and it's easy to get wrapped up and to feel as though it's a reflection of who I am. And I just, um, I think it's important to reaffirm that, yeah, it's, you're not alone if you get a no and it, it just makes it so much sweeter when you do get a yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I tell my students all the time, expect the no. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you get your first note, expect the seventh will come. And they're like, wait, what? You're telling us it's going to take more than seven interviews? Yeah. What? I'm saying no. Eventually in your career, you're going to hit your seventh no. And I feel like by the your seventh no out of all your interviewing, at least for you know, my my perspective, mm-hmm. was when I started to key in on why I was getting the notes. Yeah, so I started keeping definitely. an interview journal yeah, and noticing brilliant. that whiteboarding was my crutch. And in particular, 
it was the cognitive piece of this is not how I discuss code on a whiteboard in the office, but it's Mm -hmm. also not how I write code for it to run. Mm -hmm. And so I had to get over me feeling like writing syntactically perfect code on a whiteboard was useless into this is a function of a means for me to get the next role I want to write yeah. code the way I want to write code. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's my it's my catalyst to get there. That's a great mind shift to make because yeah, it's um, a necessary evil in that regard. And so it's cool to be able to see that though in your log and recognize that and say, okay, that's where I'm going to make a change. It's really smart. And it was out of frustration too, because I was just like, all right, there's something there that I'm not seeing, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I keep getting flown out. They keep saying yes. And then they yeah. keep saying no. Yeah. And yeah. Because the other times were a bit more clear cut, like, hey, let's do Fibonacci on a whiteboard. And it's like, all right, well, this is the 12th time I've done Fibonacci, so right, I've memorized sure. it. And then someone's like, well, how would you optimize this so it only uses one data structure? And it's like, why don't you just tell me to leave? I don't know. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> like, if you don't want to give me the job, just say I did it wrong. <laughs> oh my God. And then, like, I had to, you know, it, it was also important for me to have a place to feel that way, to get all of that out on paper Definitely. so that I didn't carry the disappointment for mm-hmm. me alone longer than I needed to. I got to carry it long enough for it to be useful and then walk away from it, then come back and go, okay, with fresh eyes. Yep. Maybe I just need to study a bit more on certain parts of data structures and how I can use memoization and different data control techniques to make Fibonacci faster. (laughs) Yeah. Like I never thought about that before, but now this is a thing. And maybe I'll face that in a real job. So Oh my gosh. Oh goodness. Okay. So well let's bring us to today. Can you tell me more about what you do as the director of engineering at Trilogy? Which uh by the way, I'm a big fan of Trilogy. I have participated in the boot camp demo days as an industry mentor. I have one this evening even for uh, University of Washington. I'm I'm just so excited to to be talking to someone that's involved in that program. That warms my heart for a lot of reasons, because what brought me to Trilogy was I started out as an instructor there. That's cool. I was teaching at UC Berkeley Extension, uh, the full stack web dev program. And towards the end of that cohort, I said, hey, I know you can't match a market rate for a senior engineer, mm-hmm. but how can we come close? And I just teach full time. Like I'll mm-hmm. teach full time during the day and then part time. Mondays and Wednesdays at nights. Like I was wow. like, I'm all in. You loved it. I, yeah. This is where I want to be. Um, Cause I had decided at that point, I wanted to get into management and or finding some way to contribute to other people's careers. Yeah. To be a part of that journey. Well, wait, actually, I think we need to go back then. So how did you find yourself into the teaching roles? Because you were, you were, you know, tech lead, you were a software engineer strictly. And how'd you make that leap? So it's interesting because it's like music and education have been themes ever since mm-hmm. Scratch DJ Academy, which was- okay. Interesting. And as far as the teaching part, I think one of the first actual full teaching things I did, I, I was a volunteer teacher for citizen schools in New York. Oh, uh, cool. I worked with the Isaac Newton Middle School and I got to create a curriculum for them mm. for sixth and seventh graders after school. And I took them from not knowing any HTML or JavaScript to building a modern version of Microsoft Paint in HTML5. I love it. Oh my gosh, that must have been so incredible for them to that light bulb moment of like what they're building. Oh, that's great. That's really cool. Yeah, it was it was amazing to see how much they like kind of hooked in, even the kids that didn't want to do it at first. <laughs> and it taught me yeah. a lot about making sure that when I talk about code, that I'm talking to the right audience in the right way. Yeah. Not dumbing it down, not no. translating and making it easier, yeah. but you know, just making sure that I'm I'm codifying things and, and explaining things in a way that yeah. is actionable and then empowers them to learn more. 
Right. To meet your audience where they're at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I loved it. And then they did a demo day at the job I was working at, at the time, which was Newton, a uh, ed tech company. Oh, okay. And they started doing things I never taught them. Like they were using the console uh, to debug their code. Mm. They started putting in breakpoints. I was like, I never taught y'all breakpoints. How do you know that? <laughs> I was like, uh, one kid had Sublime running. I was like, we never wrote in Sublime. We were using, I, I know I know the audience is going to be like, well, why did you torture them, Jason? We were using Notepad because, <laughs> because the Windows machines from the school were locked down. Yep. And when they were on Macs, the only thing we had was BB Edit, which is still a great program. But then on demo day, all they had was lockdown Mac um, sure. PCs again. It, you were making it work with what you had. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also funny because that's how I learned the code was on Notepad and Notepad++. Plus Plus. That's great. Uh, so it was like, oh, well, you know, now you could give your future uh, kids the back in my day, we coded <laughs> twice backwards in the snow, <laughs> uphill five miles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's the perfect analogy. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. But that hooked me into teaching. Okay. Got it. Yeah, so it was a part of you. Yeah, so that, that it was it was one of the things I was like, oh man, this is great. It, it kind of gives me that same warm fuzzies that I got from mm -hmm. like hanging with my nieces and nephews. I have like I have thirteen nieces and nephews, so I've been an uncle since I was four. So did you say thirteen? Yes. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> Seven nieces, six nephews, oh, and I have two great nephews and four great nieces. I love it. That's so great. It also kind of helped me to hook in on how much. I cared about creating community and mm -hmm. a little bit of it is selfish because it gives me a lot of community I didn't have when I was going through my studies at the University of Barnes and Noble. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. And it also helped me to kind of over time figure out that I wanted to find ways to give people, just show them the pitfalls that I've had and the successes that I had mm -hmm. and tell them, go make new yeah. mistakes. And so yeah. from there, I started sure. uh, mentoring with Code 2040. Um, which, okay. you know, aims to have black and brown um, students become software engineers by the year 2040 when uh, the majority minority shift is supposed to happen uh, by population. Yeah, and so uh, being a fellowship mentor to a student mm -hmm. who's like a grad student or undergrad student who's like super sharp, super hungry, and has all this new, younger wealth of experience that I haven't had. It was amazing how that pushed me out of my zone to then dial me back in, in terms of mm -hmm. how do I help this person the way I can, but also make it a two-way street. And then that led me eventually to teaching the boot camp at Trilogy. Okay. I see. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So you were teaching the boot camp at Trilogy and you were, and you, so you've taught at a couple different places. You see Berkeley, uh, University of Denver mm -hmm. currently. And so uh, all of those are for a college age student. Is that correct? Uh, so they're through the extension school. So they're anywhere from college okay. age yeah. and beyond. So adult learners. And beyond. Yeah. That's a good clarification. And that's one of the sure. things that appealed to me as well is that I was like, wow, mm -hmm. a boot camp. I wish I had a boot camp. I'd have saved oh so gosh. much money on all those books and probably my back. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I would, do you have any concept of how many books you acquired in this time of that, in that learning journey? I, I remember just remember, I remember just thinking in my head that it was always around like 5% of how many records I had. And I had, I had somewhere <laughs> around 8,000 pieces of vinyl. So probably around 400 books or so. Oh my gosh. I bet you get the walls of your place. Oh my gosh. It sounds incredible though. Like it sounds beautiful and visually just mm -hmm. really stimulating. 
Yes. I mean, I will totally affirm the bootcamp world. I am a proud graduate of Ada Developers awesome. Academy. And uh, it's funny, I've almost done an opposite trajectory of you. I was an English teacher for nearly 10 years before I found tech. Yeah, it's really cool that you have spent so much time in that coding bootcamp space because, I mean, it's it's a transformative thing that people can participate in in a short amount of time. And it did it for me. And it, I'm just such a believer in the the whole concept itself. Yeah, there's nothing more validating than someone seeing someone in any way, shape, or form that they relate to that's mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. And instead of being a gatekeeper and being a blocker, mm-hmm. they're like, no, here are the tools. 100%. Here's the ground level. Go soar as high as you can. Right? Because I remember yes. earlier in my career, especially in New York, there was a period where some folks used to refer to .NET developers as like flashcard developers because there was like this whole thing where as long as you got your, I think it was MCSC from Microsoft, which was okay. like seven modules uh, plus web you were guaranteed like a six-figure salary. Oh, I see. And over time, there was a lot of folks who were getting certified who maybe weren't the most experienced engineers getting put in these situations and then, you know, not being able to level... I wouldn't even say level up. They're being put in situations that are beyond their experience, right? And it doesn't matter how talented or how great you are, if you're not set up for success and people see a certification and think that certification equals you're like a principal... (laughs) <laughs> of that practice, <laughs> it, it kind of doesn't set you up for success, right? And so right. the kind of counterbalance of that was folks, you know, online and even in some of the spaces where I was able to meet engineers, yeah. it's like, oh, we hate those flashcard developers and blah, 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 blah. And, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, I did my master's at MIT. Like, I can't believe anyone would go to a state school. And it's like, wow. well, yeah, I wouldn't believe anyone would go to state school either. I went to a city school. Now what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Come on, like, come Uh. on, guy. And so for me, it's like, it was really awesome. And it is really awesome for me to play a role in helping affirm people's beliefs in themselves and what they can do and what's possible. Mm -hmm. And for them to counteract that, you know, you have to be some like someone who was like coding at two years old on like a TI-84 or like, you know, your first computer was a Tandy and all those things are great. No, no, I'm happy for them that that's their experience for sure. (laughs) But, you know, in terms of what's needed in the industry and how we serve the the next generation, definitely, it's not going to be a singular type of engineer. It's not going to be a singular type of learner. Right. It's not going to be a single person who went a single way and a hundred percent. I just got hooked by seeing the students have their aha moments, but also just creating, having errors in front of them. Like I'd screw up code all the time on the, on the board. And they're like, yeah, we know you know your stuff, but you oh, still have sure. an error in your code. Right. That's awesome and interesting. It makes it super relatable so that then when they're debugging and feeling frustrated with it too, they're like, oh, well, Jason, he didn't get it at first either or something. There's something there that really clicks, I think, for students. Back when I was an English teacher, my students loved when I made spelling errors on the board. Oh, <laughs> nice. Oh, oh, my gosh. That was their favorite because I'm super dyslexic. And so there were just so many moments where I just couldn't get it. And there, it but it, it does. It's a humanizing thing, but it also makes it feel as though they're learning experience, too. It, it makes them feel it's OK to make mistakes and there's learning moments in it as well. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's starting to teach them like. You know, I, I try to impart on everyone, whether I'm as a manager or as a peer or as an instructor, that we're not here to be perfect. We're here to be resilient, right? We should mm-hmm. we should endeavor to make errors that we can learn from, and we should endeavor to make errors that we've never could dream we could make. Yes, yeah. Because if, if it's an error we've never even wildly thought of, 
then we're on the path to something innovative because it's never been done before or you've just never experienced it that way before. And so now it's a teachable moment. Yeah. You know, sometimes people think it's counterintuitive when I say, oh, no, I expect you to make plenty of dope, good errors. And they're like, what's a good error? One you mm-hmm. learn from. You know, mm-hmm. uh, one of my fraternity brothers would always say, failure is just an opportunity to try again more intelligently. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what helped me a lot and what's helped me a lot in modeling that behavior in the classroom. Um, and just getting to see folks who, whatever their motivations are, come in on day one and think coding is this amazingly crazy complex. They're going to have to like write alien signals on a wall. Yeah. And then at the end of month six, they look back and they're like, wow, I remember when I didn't know what an image tag was mm-hmm. or what I when I didn't even understand what block level elements were. And now I'm building full applications in Node.js. Yeah, this like full stack thing that lifted the veil on it and it's not magic anymore, but it's instead something I understand the pieces of how it gets put together of the puzzle. That's wildly empowering. I I think that that, it's just, it's the best. It's so cool and important. And I think something neat about boot camps also is that it attracts folks who perhaps have had other careers and bring that lens to the table when they then enter the their first you know software engineering role or whatever it is that they're doing in tech and you know us as an industry benefits so much from that new and unique lens or perspective yeah like one of the most awesome engineers i ever worked with that i was just like oh my god you're like super awesome level like engineer yes yes uh, is <laughs> old colleague and friend of mine, Ashley, uh, she was, if I remember correctly, she was in bio and I think Kim and was like doing all sorts of stuff in, in the scientific world and then moved over into engineering. Sure. And I was just like, wait, you haven't been doing this your whole life? Yeah. But like, you're so like amazing with the keyboard, like, mm. wow. And a lot of times uh, I tell people that Newton was like grad school for, in, for being an engineer. Um, Mm -hmm. because we had like this school-like vibe. We were, it was a very tight-knit community of engineers and and instructors and content developers. Mm -hmm. And we all kind of got to come of age in a way professionally that definitely set me up forward and set a lot of us up forward for everything we've done since then. Oh, cool. it's great that it's like one of the few places where I look back and I say, I have zero qualms with how anything in my career went there. Like that led me to where I was going to go. Right. It was formative. Yeah. Yeah. And I only left because I got the opportunity to go to San Francisco and they were going to move me. And I was like, oh, I'm finally going home. So uh, (laughs) bye y'all. I'm out. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I get it. Yeah. And that that was an Apple, right? Like that was who pulled you? Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And (laughs) it was interesting because Apple was the first time uh, I ever had a black engineering manager. Awesome. And it was like, wow. 10, what, 10, 11 years of my career. Right. This finally happens. And then- You'd been in the role for 10 years. You'd been in tech. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. And sucks. But really cool to have someone at Apple. Yeah. And then it was interesting because two years after that, when I left Apple with the Pandora, it was the first time I ever had a woman as an engineering manager. Yeah. And it was the first time I ever saw a woman as a direct engineer and women mm-hmm. who were like in leadership in different places technically. And I was like, why is this the first time when I'm at 13 years of my career? Right. Oh my gosh, yeah. So that all, uh, it's like a lot of that, like I said, it's, it's a little selfish for me as an instructor, but like, it's a lot of these things that fuel my wish to like, let everybody know you can be here, you belong here, and mm-hmm. you can be the person that 
someone in the future thought they wouldn't see here, but now they see you there and they now think they can go. And that's powerful. Absolutely. I think it's encouraging. And it speaking only for myself, it told me when I saw women in leadership in those te- highly technical roles that it was a reminder that I could do it. And that there were just moments where I feel I was feeling, you know, self-effacing or self-doubt and, you know, to have them remind me that and be in that space and remind me that I can, can do it. Uh, it. It's just sometimes nice to have that extra person in your corner. Yeah. And it's always awesome to have that extra person and also someone who you know can relate to some part of what you've done. Good point. And it's been great. And so that takes us all the way back to today. Okay. So we're all the way back to today. And you are the director of engineering at Trilogy Education. And as I understand it, Trilogy is you create curriculum and then help programs at different colleges or spaces, campuses kind of host those boot camps. Yeah, so we uh, we have like our core curriculum and we do work with the university partners who like maybe in their market, they need something a bit more regional or okay. they want to, uh, you know, add something to make it a, a, a bit more towards, uh, I guess, their standards. Um, oh, so all okay. of our curriculum gets approved by our partners and then we actually will help them by um, being a partner with them from the enrollment process to the instructor and TAs. And so we'll help, you know, go find and and interview uh, those candidates and then submit them for review at the different universities and then universities get the final say and they get to meet staff at the university. So it's very much a partnership. Cool. And that's been awesome because it's great for people to get the cosign of these universities. Yeah. While also doing like an alternative quote unquote platform for learning this content that's not solely academic, that is a bit more practical as well. Say more about that. So it's not solely academic. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So a lot of computer science programs, which are super awesome, you get a lot of your experience in terms of the job market, depending on what you want to do. Like if you want to build web services and kind of products, a lot of that experience comes from internships. Oh, sure. So the implied in between of the, the summer, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. And so you're starting to bring all that kind of academic and theory and scientific practice into the commercial practical realm. I won't say purely practical, but it's practical in that commercial sense. Yep. No, I see what you're saying. And so instead of you being like potentially on like a research track or like going into operating systems, I kind of look at the art of writing code as both a trade and a science. Yeah. Like there's the science of computing where, you know, there's a lot of theory involved. There's a lot of, a heck of a lot of math, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? But it's also the trade. There's the, the process of taking all of these bricks and using a lot of logic and a lot of know-how and a lot of math and science as well to put together these great applications and websites. And so there is room for both. And I think when you have a lot of both, then you can kind of cross-pollinate and you start to get that magic that I've Mm -hmm. seen in some places where you know, you have someone who's like, yeah, I, you know, I know all about graph database theory. And someone else was like, I know all about web performance, put them to both in the room. And now you have a performing graph database. Right. And so yeah. yeah, that's, that's kind of what I like about the bootcamp space, especially within universities is it dispels some of that notion of like, oh, I'm just going to go do this four year degree at a school that maybe I won't know how to use. It's like, no, you're getting real world skills and you will get some of the science from that program, but you'll get a lot of the this is what you'll see on the job, kind mm-hmm. of Lego bricks to build and and, yep. and logic and problem solving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the necessary tools that you'll need in your tool belt soon when you're off in the real world. Super fair. I was always appreciative. My program, we would do computer science fundamentals, you know, once a week for, you know, an intensive for four hours on Thursdays afternoons that they were so stressful. We had no idea what they were talking, but it was good to get the exposure of it early on during the program. And then, and then we also would sometimes have workshops just about industry notions in general and the art of negotiation or how to be successful. My program is for women and gender diverse folk. And so how to be the only woman on your team or tricks in navigating that or whatever it was. But it was I was always really appreciative of those other sort of workshops that and panels that they put on, you know, folks that had previously graduated and were in the wild and in their software engineering roles and could share that real world experience. That's awesome. And I think that's the mark of a great bootcamp program, right? It's one that prepares you for the reality of being an engineer of whatever your uh, focal point. And, you know, in some programs also with the uh, types of challenges you'll face that you'll identify with. Mm -hmm. Um, And just having that little bit more push to have, to be prepared for success and set up for success where, you know, they, it came out recently that there was like a literal class, I think, at Stanford at one point that essentially it was part of the computer science program and it taught you how to get a job at like Facebook, right? Hmm. And so it's like, well, when, you, when you're up against things like that and you're, you didn't do your degree at Stanford, yeah, yeah. you're now behind the eight ball. So it's like, you know, now when you have all these different mix of programs, you, you create a new diverse network of all these amazing talents from all these different fields and backgrounds and walks of life. And now you've started to force the hand to make the playing field even a bit more equitable as you go, because at some point you're going to end up poaching the same hundred engineers and you're going to need the rest of us anyway. Mm-hmm. So we'll just keep, we'll just keep stocking up and we'll just keep learning and either we'll build our own or you'll come be like, Oh wait, you know what? You actually have what we need. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I do Definitely. like it as also a way to kind of keep the industry honest a bit. Yeah. And keep us all honest, that's in the industry, right? That's a good point. So I love all that about Trilogy. And in my day role, what I do when I'm not teaching is yeah. uh, our team works on like our centralized grading platform, um, oh, our cool. our online and blended learning platforms. So like some, we have some programs that are self-paced, but you have live instruction at the end of the week. Oh, um, neat. And, okay. and you're like TA supported. So like you still Crazy. get that support, okay. but you also get to kind of go at your own pace a bit more, which is awesome. Yeah. So you've, um, that's a flipped classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Very interesting. Nice. So working on that platform of making sure that that works and runs. Yeah. And, you know, and all of our integrations, you know, with with the the Zooms and and the other platforms of the world. Um, Yeah. You know, we had a a crazy lift a couple months ago where a lot of our in-person classes had to move online because of, you know, coronavirus. So sure awesome part of what the team was since we were already working on centralization projects, we were able to kind mm-hmm. of shift people on yeah. much sooner and kind of help train instructors and things like that. Awesome. So oh, we pretty great. much cover anything that touches the classroom experience. Okay. So it's attendance, yeah. homework, projects, curriculum tools for like grading, um, remote learning. Cool. Uh, yeah. Payment portals, 
the whole nine. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's, yeah, no, that's really important and yeah, necessary for the programs to be running. But it's, I did a, um, a webinar for Trilogy a couple months ago um, on making your first API call and how to send a text message or make a voice call with uh, Vonage APIs. And um, oh. we, it was really fun. And they asked incredible questions. I'm super engaged audience. I was wildly impressed, uh, just as I was at the demo days. I built on the MERN stack. Um, at mm-hmm. UW. I'm not sure if all of your students do, but I projects that they they spoke all about and had built in that I think what a month time. Yep, were, were super impressive. Yeah, um, that's been one of the things that's been super awesome for me to see on both sides of the aisle, is that I by day help manage and mentor the engineers who are building the tools that help enable them to get all this information to and do, do it, these yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on the flip side, being an instructor and watching people build things in their sixth month of ever writing code. Yeah. It took me years to try to figure out when I was doing PHP. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh wow. So the three of y'all, <laughs> nice. Y'all built some crazy. So cool. So the University of Denver and the one and and UC Berkeley, both of those are through the trilogy program also though. Yes. Um, I assume. Okay. Neat. That's yeah, that's really cool that you're then able to participate in different programs too yeah and it's so cool i love that you're able to teach and then also still be in that you know engineering role as well with teams of engineers and helping you know support that too it's really cool yeah it's been great to also just have the support of everybody internally um there's quite a few of us who are full-time employees that also teach (laughs) or, or have taught um so like my manager used to teach down at uh unc Okay. Uh, one of the tech leads that I manage, he has taught plenty of courses at uh, mm-hmm. UGA. A lot of us play those dual roles. Like we have folks on the SSM student support side who have taken the bootcamp or who have written code. Oh. We have engineers who took the bootcamp as well. Who are part How of our cool program. is that? Um, oh my gosh. Know, I love that. One of my first hires when I uh, first started at Trilogy uh, we ended up poaching him from a different department, but he was actually the TA for the first course I taught. Oh my gosh. And another person yeah. uh, that was a student in my second cohort, he worked with us for a number of years. So like, we also are good about getting folks from our uh, our learning community and our alumni community and our instructional community mm-hmm. into the company as well. Because one thing that is important for us is to always make sure that the student experience keeps us honest and the instructor yep. experience does as well. Like right. we're not building tools for ourselves; We're building tools for that different experience. Yeah. yeah. The curriculum probably has to change quite a bit as the tech industry evolves and whatever is the necessary thing for people to be, you know, learning so that they can get that full stack role when they leave and graduate. So you have to be adaptable and also like, I don't know, flexible too with how it's all working. Yeah, and our curriculum teams, I mean, they function like really, really fluid, agile, like product development teams. Mm, um, cool. they, they all have different processes and they will research, build, test, tinker, unit test, tinker some more, ask for feedback, tinker some more, and also just release early and often and making sure oh, nice. that students have the best information in front of them that they, they can provide, but also yeah. that's not going to disrupt them, right? So like, we're not going to like, change module 20 on them on their 20th week where like it's like oh no we weren't supposed to do this no uh, definitely they're they're, they they try to be pretty good at you know also themselves like staying honest to the student experience and understanding that they're writing curriculum for instructors to teach but also for students to receive 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you having been a teacher for so long, you you know how hard that lesson plan, you know, voice oh, yeah. uh, writing oh, can be. So. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I just think it's a challenge for any program is to stay relevant, because if you have people mm-hmm. that are teaching and are not being in the software engineering role, then they don't necessarily know. They just know what the most recent thing that they had worked on when they were you know, a dev. It's a hard balance to strike to stay up on the times and then also be a great educator. So there's a really interesting thing that has to happen there for it to work successfully. You know, it's why so many four-year programs are teaching antiquated tech stacks and, you know, why I was taught backbone in like 2018. And that was, it was an antiquated thing, but it's just a hard thing to stay up on the times of it. But it's, it sounds like you've got a good team working on that effort. It's neat. Yeah. And the awesome thing too, is that we're not afraid to talk to the community, right? Like, mm-hmm. so we have, yeah. you know, we have folks like you coming to our webinars who can also provide us honest feedback. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, your students are well-prepared. Hey, your students need to be prepared in this way. Yeah, um, sure. Definitely. Instructors and curriculum writers all come from the industry in some form and so they also get to share and talk and and collaborate and you know as engineers do sometimes debate (laughs) do that but i I do think it helps us provide you know the best product we can when when we can Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's incredible and i think you know a takeaway for listeners and if you're someone who is considering a boot camp i think something you really think about is to do your research on a program because they're not all created equal and you know some are fast cash programs and others Mm -hmm. are not i don't know i just there's there's so many routes to tech now and that's incredible and awesome but i also don't want anyone to get swindled in the process i'm not sure Right. that's the right word for it but uh, I, it is I, I'll, I'll say it is <laughs> I just don't want, I'm getting nervous about it and I was so lucky about my experience and so but I know that's not for everywhere you know and at, my program was a full year which also you know not everyone can afford to give up a salary for a year and so that was really tough and so there's just there's a lot of things to look to balance and when evaluating what might be the right fit for you yeah that's I think that's super important and I you know I when people do ask me, I don't send them to Trilogy at first, um, <laughs> which don't get mad at me admissions. But <laughs> my biggest thing to everyone, first and foremost, is what do you want to do and what environment do you feel like you best learn in? Mm-hmm. And then let those two things kick off your research yeah. and dive deep. How are the instructors? How do they treat their alumni? Yeah. How, do their, how are their TAs treated? Because if your teacher and assistants aren't treated well, Yep. And your instructors are put on a pedestal, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a very wishy-washy experience that's going to be right. very unbalanced, right? right. Um, you know, understanding the dynamics of, hey, if I give up this amount of time and go to school for free now, but I have to pay back 18% of my salary mm-hmm. for a couple of years because it's a it's a the income sharing agreement. Yep. Yeah, ISA. Yeah, a lot of places do that, yeah. It's you have to understand, one, if that's the right school for you to do that. And two, if that's the right model for you. Right. Right. Uh, For some people, it is. And for some people, those schools do have what they offer. For others, maybe a 15K program or a 20K program or a 10K program or a 5K program is more palpable. And so it really comes down to much like the university experience. And, you know, it, it comes down to you you have to spend some amount of time capital up front 
to mm-hmm. give yourself the best environment that you feel like you can learn in. And mm-hmm. another thing I suggest everyone to do is take everyone's uh, pre-workout test. Like anyone yes. who has an evaluation before you have to sign on dotted line, do it. that will let you know if it's written in a voice and taught in a way that you feel like speaks yeah. to you that you feel comfortable in or you feel like you can learn from also. I think it is a difficult thing to know. Not everyone knows what style of learner they are. So that is some introspective work that needs to be done. Um, You know, if online learning isn't going to work for you or if you need to be in person, whatever it is, or if it's, you know, video-based or text-based, there's just so many different styles. And so that is an important thing to kind of like invest in time thinking about. But yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really good piece of advice to to do that pre-work. We have, we have a jumpstart program, our ADA does. And so I, I remember reading it and and loving that there was a part about even before they introduced us to the terminal, there was like ethics in, in tech segment of learning on that before I even you know got into any assignment or questionnaire like that. It was super cool. And so I thought like, oh, wow, I'm immediately drawn to this. And so, yeah, that's I really, really like that idea. That's awesome. And I think that's something that needs to get put into everybody's curriculum, period. We need to spread ethics in tech so bad. So, 100%. so bad. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Another thing is I tell people go on LinkedIn, search the bootcamp. Definitely. Um, a lot of grads and a lot of instructors will add that bootcamp as a job, which makes it easier for you to find them on LinkedIn. And sometimes more often than not, just like with people who maybe list the company they worked at, you can tell sometimes before you message them whether or not they had a favorable experience mm-hmm. and then kind of take, you know, take whatever you want worth, however weight you think that person's words matter, but that's part of the research. Just see how many people in your area went to that bootcamp. That could also tell you something. If like there's 20 bootcamps in your area, but out of a hundred people on on LinkedIn, you only saw that five went to one and everyone else went to like three others. Mm. Well, now you have some pointed questions to ask as to, hey, what drew you there? And why do so few people go here from this community? Even if they come from out of state or they're online, that's great. But why not the people here? When they can just walk down the block. Some good data analytics to be done. And yeah, just like ask those questions, be curious and have those conversations because it can be incredibly formative for your experience and it can be your entry way into the tech industry, but also decide whether or not, take some time to decide whether or not code is interesting to you. Because I think Mm -hmm. there's also something happening where code is like really sexy and it it sounds like it's going to be a great career or money opportunity. And we're not actually really interested in in the tech itself. And so, yeah, like take a one-on-one tutorial from, you know, free program or code academy or there's just so many different resources online so you know build a hello world app and see if that feels like i don't know that's not awesome advice either though because those are really um back to kind of our original part of the conversation it's like that's not really interesting tech because it doesn't really solve a problem and that's why it was so interesting for you when you were at the dj academy to be building web pages that you know were a part of you were solving problems that were fun for you and so I don't know. It's yeah. just, I get nervous about that part too. I also think, you know, one thing that is something that I learned when I moved into management mm-hmm. is like in the beginning, I always said, just leave me in a corner with a bowl of cereal and a laptop and I will write you all the code you need. I'll talk to everybody. I'll make my rounds. But when I'm coding, just let me code, right? Like yeah. I, I wanted to be that developer. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. somewhere that switched and I was like, no, nah, I care about people. And so- mm. One big thing about even entering tech is 
understanding how you like to problem solve. Yeah. Mm. Like if if you're more of a, a a thinker and like kind of putting things on the board and, and 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 kind of crafting plans a certain way, then you can figure out if code enables you to solve problems in a way that matches that. If you're someone who's a bit more tangible or like you like crunching numbers all the time, mm-hmm. maybe keyboard action is something for you. Maybe it's product, maybe it's design. The right. other thing is even if you do end up saying, yes, I want to try code and I go to a code kit, at the end of the day, it's still your first introduction to what is a bunch of features and roles in, in the technology sphere. Yeah. Like yeah. I've I've had quite a few students who came in and went on to say, you know what, I really like technical writing or you know what, yep. I went to UX instead. Uh, yeah. One of my first, one of my earliest mentees, about half the way through our program, he said, you know what? I want to do product. And I was like, well, I will give you all the experiences I can as an engineer to help you understand what you'll be facing in product. Definitely. Because your other mentor is like the product guy out here. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. he's going to touch you. Every, he's going to tell you everything you need to know. Well, definitely. Fact, and I mean, product is never going to not, you're like product will always benefit from having that technical background. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, great. But no, I think that's a great, thank you for saying that because I sometimes do get frustrated that uh, my program really pushed us all to that software dev. We need to be full stack. That was the goal. That was the main objective. And I remember, you know, kind of feeling as though I wanted to explore other things. And I miss being involved in the learning journey for individuals. And yeah, I, I, it took a lot of introspection and, in, you know, reflective moments to decide to pursue a role in DevRel. And I'm so happy that I found it, but there's just a lot of different things that we can be doing within the umbrella of tech. And so, yeah, I, I definitely encourage listeners to explore and just, you know, like talk to other people that are in the industry and doing those types of things, because there's so many things that having a knowledge that is gained in a bootcamp scenario uh, will benefit from. Yeah, and I love that DevRel, especially in the last couple of years, has made such big waves and like become such more, a much more prominent area, as well as like Dev Advocates and yeah, and, even, and like developer style customer success roles, like all these highly skilled what people once thought were like oh, it's just like you know some people might have thought years ago that's like you know oh, it's like a call center with people who write code. No, it's not. You're right. talking about people who are multidisciplined because they have to teach your customers. And be t- as technically uh, sharp as your customers, engineers, mm-hmm. and also have to deal with millions of different personal uh, personalities. Mm-hmm. So right. you're talking about someone who's like wearing like three or four hats. Like all of these roles also do one big important thing, in my opinion, and that's it humanizes mm-hmm. every part of the tech journey. Right? It humanizes the developers who's working behind the DevRel team. It humanizes the customers who maybe you don't like the way they worded that ticket, but when you talk to their developers, they are another human, right? Like it creates yet another human connection point. It just reminds us that no matter how much tech we have and how much AI is going to take all of our jobs at some point, you still need people to tell the AI to take our jobs. No, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that there is that human factor and we have to like continue to search to find it as well. Yeah, so thank you for saying that. I um Okay, so I, I've really gone off book away from the questions, but we've organically answered and addressed a lot of them. Um, let's see, uh, can you share any life lessons that you've learned from your transition to tech? Yeah, I think one of the biggest life lessons I learned in my transition to tech is that everything breaks. Mm. And <laughs> that's a really important life lesson that I didn't realize I needed until like I got comfortable with 
being okay with having bugs or with taking um, a system in production down. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there was that time at Pandora that I almost took down Pandora.com. Oh. Thankfully, the team caught it before they deployed. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll wake you up. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it's one of those things that teaches you that so long as you're breathing, like nothing is unrecoverable. Mm-hmm. Nothing is so far broken in most parts of tech that if you break something, you can't fix it. Um, yeah. The second piece is that every single thing is a learning opportunity. Mm. Even the not so great parts, even the interactions where maybe you feel isolated or ostracized, mm-hmm. um, places where you feel like the culture isn't the best for you. Yeah. All these things add up to really help you understand where you should go next okay. and yeah. why. And yeah. once I started to really understand my relationship with quote unquote failure and breaking things in technology, mm-hmm. I kind of was able to start to apply it to my personal life. And I'm like, oh, you know, people are actually aren't that bad after all. I like y'all. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's just one of those little reminders that, you know, when things get super stressed out and super heavy, because, you know, we do end up in crazy busy environments yeah. that there is nothing wrong at all. If anything, you need to always ensure that you are able to take a step back and breathe mm-hmm. and just look at the problem just a tad bit differently and understand that, hey, if you went down the wrong path, it's never too late to change. Yeah. You can always shift gears. <laughs> you can always, you know, revert your Git commit. <laughs> yep. Speaking of something you just kind of touched on is, can you tell me about a time that you felt like an outsider and how you maybe have dealt with those feelings? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think one of the biggest examples for me was um, for the first couple of years when I worked at an ad agency in New York, I didn't see anyone that looked like me on a tech team. Our tech team was very splintered. The one other like uh, woman of color and woman that was on tech in my smaller group had left the company a couple months in. Mm-hmm. And I really got to a point where I was like, okay, maybe this tech thing isn't it. Maybe yeah. I'm just not cut out for this. Ugh. And my old boss, who hates when I call him a boss, Matt Schultz, I always uh, used to always jokingly tell him, like, hey, dude, you saved my career in tech. Um Because he saw something in me and we talked and although like ethnic and and background wise, we couldn't be more different. Yeah. We dropped out of the same college, grew up in similar neighborhoods in in the Bronx. Yeah. And actually dropped out the same programs and also had similar pathways back into tech via some form of media or music. And he was also the one that got me to really understand that. I wasn't angry all the time. Mm. I just had a lot of pent up frustration and nobody to actually communicate with. Like whether it was about a project or about how the team was structured or right. about a direction. You didn't have that outlet. Yeah, like not at all, let alone someone trusted who understood tech. Because like most of the people I knew, if they worked in tech, they worked in finance. Yeah. And I didn't know a darn thing about the markets. I didn't care at the time. It was just like, that's where my 401k is, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, like, if your script blew up something, I really don't know anything about .NET or, you know, that 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 model that you broke, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but having someone who was able to validate my frustrations and feelings and even just the type person I was and say, look, I see you, I hear you, and I think I can help you get to where you want to go. Sure. Uh, and then put me in those positions. That kind of shifted 
really everything for me in around 2009. Um, otherwise, I probably would have quit there and tried to pursue music a lot more heavily and just would have walked away from tech. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just wasn't, as much as I enjoyed some of the earlier stops, you know, in the job between that Ultra 16 and uh, where I ended up at was iCrossing, the last agency, and a job before that was like this music startup. I found myself in these places where I'm like, I'm ending up in these jobs, whereas folks who are talented, folks who have a good idea, but they can't really pay me what I'm worth and okay. or the structure here isn't set up for me to succeed the way I want to as an engineer. Yeah. And so that was that huh. was a great way to kind of handle that feeling. I think the one of the other times was when I was at Apple. Ironically enough, I had a black manager and I had a diverse team and I felt more alone because I was in a new city, which was a lot less diverse at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the one thing I always had in New York was even if I didn't see a lot of black people in tech, I saw a lot of black people at happy hour because we right. all worked in New York and I'm yeah. from New York. So all my high school friends are there. My college friends are there. Yeah, yeah. And then coming out here, it was like, oh, if I'm not hanging with my boss or like somebody on my team... <laughs> I don't know, like nine, like I don't have really anybody here. Yeah. And so that actually helped me to seek out Code 2040 and start mentoring there. Yeah. Because um, I was like, I don't want someone else to come here during an internship and have that feeling. They need to know at least there's one person. Yeah. And then yeah. I joined an organization called Dev Color. Oh, cool. And that was about, you know, uniting engineers of color uh, in the Bay. And now it's in four cities. And oh, it was like, okay, there's this network. And where are all of y'all? Where have yeah. y'all been? I don't see y'all on the train. I don't see y'all in the car. I don't see y'all at the mall. I didn't know we were here. Right. And then, and then even seeing all the women that's also in these organizations, I'm like, where are y'all? I'm always in these rooms where people talk about, let's go weightlift afterwards. There's like no oh diversity. Everybody wants to do the same four things. Like, I roll, I roll, I roll. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, like, for me, it was like that outsiderness once I kind of, Especially talking through it in therapy, once mm-hmm. I like really got to hone in like what I was actually feeling. Yeah. Again, a, a lot of my service to people is a little bit selfish, and I will admit that from up front. <laughs> but <laughs> it was like I need people to not feel that way. I, I, I like I strongly have this feeling that like folks should always have a base level of. No matter how I learned these skills, I earned my way here, mm. and. People like me are here, so let's go. Mm-hmm. Now let's go do some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you know, and if they're going to find themselves in isolated situations, to at least be able to have folks they can talk to that can relate to their experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like getting a mentor, getting friends outside of your immediate circle. Um, Twitter was great for that as well for building Definitely. that network. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just turned that feeling into fire. <laughs> I love that. No, that's it. I think that that is encouraging and empowering to hear. Uh, and I think something that listeners will really connect to. I mean, to circle back to kind of the, the main objective of this podcast, but how has your past in the music space, do you end up seeing that impacting your role at Trilogy today? Yeah, I think one, that initial way of like how we, you know, as a DJ, I dealt with people who always wanted to make a request, no matter how <laughs> sober or drunk they were, yes. um, kind of oh gave me a, a good floor for how to be professional at all times. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and I think the second part, especially from like the early days at Scratch, mm-hmm. it was two things that I've benefited from, especially at Trilogy, is one, 
that notion of meeting people where they are, whether in an instructional or in a management case. Yes. Um, and two, of understanding and knowing your worth, um, knowing that what you want, you deserve, and you, you got the skills to back that up. And I was fortunate that not once, but twice Trilogy saw that because I actually left mm-hmm. Trilogy and then came back. I became the company's uh-huh. official first boomerang um, yeah. <laughs> about like a year and a half ago. Uh, and one of the biggest ways that part was validated for me was the negotiation process was fine. It wasn't like, oh, you know, we wanted you to come back. You wanted to come back. And now you're going to ask us for, you know, it was, all right, cool. This is the, another part of the process. Yeah. And then once we got through our negotiations and we both signed a dotted line, it was welcome back. Great. And knowing that one, there was no hard feelings for me leaving and people understood that and still Definitely. wanted the best for my career. Oh, Two, yeah. wanted me to continue teaching. They're like, as long as you don't quit the classroom, go wherever yeah. you want. <laughs> and then three, to welcome me back with open arms. Um, cool. That was really uh, kind of affirming and validating from my early experiences of like DJing and negotiating and being in mm. DJ communities and, and like DJing for for like artists. Like I used to DJ for artists, Rugged and Roar, and it was kind of similar deal. Like, I mean, he's a close friend, but we also had like this professional relationship. And it's always great when I'm able to kind of get those types of lessons back here because mm-hmm. um, it gives it. me everything I missed from like those experiences, like those relationships, I that see. authenticity of separating the professional from the personal, but still be able to enjoy both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's um, that's really cool. Do you have any advice for those that are wanting to transition into tech that you could share? Yes. Uh, first things first, uh, you don't have to be a programmer to be successful in tech. Mm. Um, Retweet. If you want to code, write code, I support you a thousand percent. If you don't, but you want to be in tech, I support you a thousand and one. Um, a good friend of mine, Shayla, entered tech a couple years ago. She's been a lifelong writer and now does like a lot of writing for accessibility and UX. Oh, great. Uh, and so the one thing that I think people fall into is that you have to be a designer or a developer to be in tech. Yeah. And my advice is find the thing that you love that helps you solve problems and look for that in tech first mm-hmm. and then figure out what mm. skills you need to do that. Like right. That. Um, because the biggest thing in tech period is not the code. It's not the design. It's not the writing. It's the problem solving. Yeah. I always say that code is 90% yeah. problem solving, 10% code. The code mm-hmm. is only to solve the problem that you figured out. Yes. You don't problem solve to figure out the code. <laughs> right. So, so true. and so like, that's usually my biggest piece of advice is just figure out where you are genuinely interested in tech and pursue that. Um, The second piece of advice I would say is always understand that the investment you made to get into tech, Mm -hmm. no one can take from you. No one can take your bootcamp certificate from you. No one could take the two years of you studying alone. No one could take you hanging out on a bunch of people's Twitch streams. No one can take any of that from you. Your work is your work and you deserve that in terms of that being recognized. So my biggest piece of advice to you is you're going to hear things. You're going to feel things. You're going to see things. Take all of that in, Mm -hmm. but always keep with you the one thing. No one can take away any of the time or money you've spent on being in tech in the way you want to be in tech. Mm -hmm. 
And once you know they can't take that, they can't take your joy because you will find your way in. And yeah, be like in that persistence too. There's there's something about that, like resilience there as well. Yeah, it's, you know, and I guess that leads to the third piece, which is kind of relating from before of, of the notion of keep a journal. Yeah, that log. Log your interviews. Like mm-hmm. I got insane at one point. I started writing time of day. I started writing how sweaty I was. Because then I noticed, all right, maybe I shouldn't wear all these clothes when I go to interviews. Because no, that's all. That's so true. I have a friend that uh, passed out in a Google interview, <laughs> and we were like, okay, well, let's look at what happened. What what led up to that? <laughs> you know, you you have to do the analysis on all of that. No, I think the log is so important because it'll help you see the patterns. Oh, and the last piece, which yes. you'll, I think everyone should carry with them in any industry, but especially in tech culture over paycheck Mm. if you are trying to pursue a long career in tech make sure the culture is good enough that you want to earn your paycheck there now if you choose the amount of a paycheck beyond some warning signs and you say all right i'm going to do it for x amount of time that's a personal choice most of the success i've seen in this industry and this is all anecdotally right because i'm not talking about like the big folks i'm talking about a lot of people i met you know people like you people i met in different programs I know for me personally, it, when I decided to interview based on culture and not on salary alone, I made more money than I ever did. And I ended up in some very great places. Yeah. Well, can I actually ask what your tricks are or tips that you have for sussing that out in an interview? Yes. Uh, first thing, figure out what's most important to you about your teammates. Like, okay. Think about your coworkers yeah. now, even outside of tech. Okay. And yeah, then definitely. ask that of each of the panelists. Um, number two, whether it's your first interview or your 1000th, it is a two way street. Treat it like you would. Yeah. Yeah. Treat it like you would dating or any other form where you expect (laughs) there to be a two way, uh, kind of stake in, in the conversation. Uh, Mm -hmm. you're not there. You're not there solely at their pleasure. They're there solely at your pleasure too. Like they wouldn't be in that room if you weren't there as much as they would be in a room if you weren't there. So walk in with that 50-50 and let that empower the questions you ask. Um, One question I tend to ask a lot is what's one thing you are working to change, no matter how small or how big it is here? Because if more than half the people there say everything's perfect, I pretty much know that either this is Nirvana or you all have some really good alcohol on Fridays and maybe this ain't the best place for me. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Uh, Another thing is just asking like, hey, So, you know, first lead with talking about your experience as you Mm -hmm. control the conversation. Uh, Good. You should always control the conversation. Um, The more you're talking and you're talking about relevant things, the more you're able to suss out of them and also ask them questions. Yeah. The more they're peppering you with questions, the more you feel like you're on the defense. Be on the offense. Exactly. Yeah. I Um, like that. You know, to start, ask them about their code review process. Hey, hey, look, in my, you know. In my bootcamp, one of my earliest experiences that I really enjoyed was pair programming and also constructive mm-hmm. code reviews. What is the culture around your code reviews? What is your culture around unit testing? What is your culture? Because those things don't just talk about the code aspect. It talk about how you talk about people oh, writing yeah. the reviews, writing the unit tests. And that's way more important than the actual test or review itself. Mm-hmm. And last piece, the first 100,000 you make in this industry will be the hardest. Mm-hmm. Once you get past 100,000, it gets a lot more fluid. So, especially as you move around. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's 100% true. Uh, Okay, so Jason, make your shout out. What would you like the listeners to go check out? Cool. So a couple of things I got for you to check out. One, (laughs) Media Developer Experts, uh, Cloudinary is sponsoring an awesome program of folks like Lauren, myself, and many, many others uh, (laughs) who are here to share the content and knowledge of what it means to work with media on the web. So definitely check us out at, I think it's cloudinary.com slash MDE. We have a Discord chat. You can always find many of us. Search the Cloudinary MDE hashtag on Twitter. Um, The second thing I'll bring your attention to is Code2040, which is an awesome program that takes black and brown engineers from different universities and puts them in a immersive fellowship over the summer uh, here in the Bay Area and also in New York, but also um, racial justice and um, and battling inequality in tech is part of that fellowship. So these students are not just there to uh, get the professional um, experience, but they're also there to also empower to make change as they then enter the industry themselves when they graduate. Um, and so they get to both educate and learn and inform and be informed. Uh, so code2040.org, uh, they are a nonprofit. They are super awesome. If you feel it in your heart, share the name, share the word, share a dollar. All of that is always helpful. Um, and the last shout out uh, is just a couple of personal plugs. Yeah. I live code on Twitch and I'm yeah. trying to get better at it. So, <laughs> Well, it's what we were saying before. It's like uh, live coding on Twitch is such a vulnerable making thing, but it's also the coolest because you show you show that like you're going to make mistakes and that is going to natu- it has to happen it's inevitable but it there's something so incredible about showing that and sharing that with the community that I'm I'm all about it I love it it is awesome to have people like come into chat like I had one person come into chat and say oh you know I've been doing this for a while but I really don't feel like I'm an engineer I'm like oh well what are you working on and they're like oh we're building this platform that takes a snapshot of what you've been writing sends it out to a service and then eventually it'll be able to come back and tell you like if you're using proper formats or not or yeah. proper um like programming language idioms like so like a step further than intellisense and i'm like uh dude uh, if you're doing that with ai yeah, you're are. you're better than me and <laughs> oh my gosh imposter syndrome is live and well my goodness uh, okay cool no so you so you live stream on twitch of course and as always i will include in the show notes everything you've shouted out but i will also include your twitch channel as well awesome yeah and um last piece i'll shout out is just mm-hmm. if you're working on web in any form or you're interested in tech and web in any form please 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 research and do whatever you can within accessibility i think mm-hmm. a lot of people take accessibility to only mean certain different physical abilities like like uh, lack of eyesight or lack of hearing there's so many more ways that we are differently abled and so many ways that affects us whether we're neurotypical or not and as we move further into tech being the thing all of us need to play a part in understanding what we can do to make everything have equal access like i i can't be here and talk to y'all about access and education if i'm not going to talk about access and all things we build um access that is the actionable word there so accessibility look up look it up uh you may say uh shortened as a11y i found out last week that the 11 stands for the 11 letters between a and y in accessibility i did not know that 
Oh my gosh, I thought it just because it looked like an ally. I don't know. I it's (laughs) okay. Thank you for saying that. I think that that is super important, and it's just definitely a really a, a great place to spend and invest some time in learning and. If it's curious to you, become. I've seen a lot of people find success in becoming the expert, um, yes. accessibility expert on their on their team, and I think that that is a really interesting and important place to be in. And I think, yeah, absolutely. That concludes my shoutouts. Yeah, those are your <laughs> shoutouts. Okay, so where, Jason, can people find you online? Uh, yeah, so uh, most things, it's my government name, Jason J. Phillips. So LinkedIn, I think it's Jason JP if you use the short link. Otherwise, Jason J A Y S O N J Phillips. Twitch, same thing, Jason J. Phillips. We stream almost often on Tuesdays and usually any other days whenever I feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to be a yeah. bit more consistent there. Uh, Twitter, That's underscore hard. JJ Phillips, uh, two L's in Phillips. Uh, and Instagram, I am jay.philz. I take pictures of sneakers, which I'm really passionate about, and food, which I love cooking. Amazing. And running because I don't run fast, but I run far. Oh, I love that. Yes, I saw that um, that you are you've run a lot of races in your life, which is super cool. I am a runner myself, and I was like, "Ooh, that's awesome!" It seems like you've traveled for a lot of them too. Super cool. Yeah, so I have twenty full, uh, twenty half marathons under my belt across nine states and three countries. Oh my uh, gosh! What's your favorite of them all? Uh Maratona do Rio in Brazil. Oh, yeah. I have never met a more awesome crowd, Uh, a more welcoming crowd, and also the best hydration on a course ever. They were (laughs) biodegradable cups that are sealed. You just pop it open, drink the water, and they go into uh, like a biodegradable bag. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. No more oversweet and Gatorade. (laughs) Heck, yeah. That is amazing. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I will have to look it up. I want to do it. I mean you know, when travel is a thing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Okay. Well, that brings us to our end. Jason, thank you so much for such an incredible conversation today. I, of course, will include everything that you spoke about in the show notes. And yeah, thank you for, you know, just sharing your wisdom and your story with us. Uh, I I couldn't appreciate you more. Lauren, appreciate the opportunity. And I love what you've been doing with this. Um, I I love this platform. It's very important. And now I'm going to do the cheesy thing where I repeat the title of the podcast and say, it's great for us to know that we belong here. Uh, But seriously, um, this is an awesome platform. Uh, Well, thank you. Uh, And I will will speak to you soon. All right. Sounds good, Laurie. All right. Bye. And that's a wrap on today's episode. Big thanks to the sponsor of today's episode, Cloudinary, and their Media Developer Expert Program, which is a global initiative for developer influencers who are passionate about learning, growing, and sharing their expertise in the exciting arena of rich media management while leveraging the power of Cloudinary's platform and extensive education resources. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Lolo Coding, that's L-O-L-O-C-O-D-I-N-G, to learn more about how you can become an MDE too. And as always, be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts and check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.